Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai. Welcome to Q&A. I'm Jack Tain. This morning, we can confirm the government is developing a vaccine pass or proof of vaccination system to be used domestically in New Zealand. The question now, when will it be needed? We now have enough vaccines to vaccinate everyone who in New Zealand who is eligible at pace. Then the three waters reforms could fundamentally change how we manage our most important asset. Is the government prepared to override local councils to get what it wants? And kua tata te wiki o te reo Māori, a pōpō, ka whakanui tātou i te reo, nā reira, i te atanei, ka tai i te wahine te kōrero ngā reo rangatira katoa o Aotearoa. Māori Language Week kicks off tomorrow. Today, a mission to bring a language to all. Have a sense of belonging is really important. Uh, and, and, that's, and that's no different for Māori Deaf. We will have that story for you soon. But first, with most of Aotearoa at alert level two, our biggest city remains firmly locked down. Cabinet is set to make a decision tomorrow about a potential move for Auckland with 23 community cases recorded yesterday. The Ministry of Health announced overnight that three people have tested positive for the virus after visiting Middlemore Hospital. Rodney Jones from Wigram Capital Partners has been modelling the outbreak since the start of the pandemic and providing the government advice on the trajectory of infections. He is with us now live. Kia ora Rodney, thanks for being with us on Q&A. From what we understand at the moment, what is the likelihood Auckland will move out of Alert Level 4 this week? Yeah, tenakoi, Jack. Uh, very low. I mean, yesterday was a tough day. Um, I personally was gutted to, to see those numbers so close to decision day and then the news overnight of those unlinked infections at, at Middlemore. So neither of us a wants... a tough challenge ahead of us. Yeah, n- neither of us wants to be the archangel of, um, of pessimism. But let me ask this then. If it is unlikely Auckland will move from alert level four this week, from the way infections are tracking at the moment, what is the likelihood Auckland will move out of Level 4 next week? Uh, look, we really hope we have a much better week and that by you know, the time of your show next week, we're looking at low single-digit cases. But the difficulty is we have just have these consistent background cases which we don't know where they come from. And the concern is there's a... In the background, there's a level of infection and outbreak that we can't get our arms around. We have seen this overseas. We're seeing it going on in Canberra and ACT, where they continue, you know, they're, they're a week longer into us than this. They're probably at three and a half, three to three and a half level. But they continue to have these unexplained cases. And, and that's the challenge with Delta. And, and that's the concern. Is there a risk then that we get stuck? Yeah, that risk is non-zero. We hope it doesn't happen. Um, Elimination's been successful for New Zealand. We've achieved it quickly. We did that a year ago. But Delta just behaves in these ways that is is hard to model because you seem to get these kind of background events or background infections that you just don't... Each country has struggled with that you don't get your arms around. Right. What would being stuck mean in terms of our response to the pandemic? Well, what we have to start doing is imagining a different path from here. What we've had in the last 18 months has been fantastic. But in a sense, it was a pre-Delta life. It was an echo from kind of a different age. Our life here has carried on for New Zealanders in the country. 
has carried on for normal longer than the rest of the world. Mm. And this Delta outbreak, we hope this is not the case, but it may be the case that we, we struggle to get our arms around it. And then we're going to have to start at some point adapting to it. And, and that would mean the things we're doing in the rest of the country now with masks, with contact tracing, getting very high level of vaccinations. Mm -hmm. uh, but it means a lower level of activity. It means more restrictions, that, that freedom we've enjoyed so much, we may not get back to that point. We hope we do still today, you still hope, but we have to start imagining a world where we don't. Does that mean we should be imagining a world where Auckland, say, moves to alert level three without having stamped out all cases in the community? The, the cost, level four has given us a big payoff in the past, but we've, we've gone to level four, we've stamped it out quickly, we've come out of mm. it strong. And up till we went into lockdown now, the economy was doing well. But it may be that we can't sustain that cost, that the cost to the economy becomes too high. That is a possibility that we have to be aware of. And then we move down, but that means we're going to have to use different tools. And that's why I've been so focused on South Auckland, because it's about what sorts of tools are we going to need to kind of manage this pandemic with less restrictions. Let's talk about South Auckland. You appeared before Select Committee this week and expressed some of your concerns. What do you think the Delta outbreak has taught us about the inequities in the South Auckland community versus other communities in New Zealand? It, what we've experienced this time has actually been what we've seen in the rest of the world, that in affluent areas and affluent suburbs, outbreaks are brought under control very quickly. That happened in Sydney, and it's happened, say, with our Birkdale cluster. Even where you have strong institutions like the Mangani AOG Church, they brought it under control relatively fast. Where you get in trouble is where Delta is spreading in socially deprived communities where they face challenges that most New Zealanders can't imagine, where life is difficult, and they lack sort, the sorts of institutions such as churches to support them. And then that's when it spreads, and that's when you get these background cases, and that's where things like Level 4 struggle to work. Right. So, so what does that tell us about the inequities in our society? Ah, you know, we, we avert our eyes. The, the inequality that is evident in South Auckland, but also in Northland and Poverty Bay on the East, East Cape, we avert our eyes. And the cost, the, the cost of this inequality has manifested over a long period of time. The thing with COVID is the cost appears over three months. You get a Delta outbreak in a, in a society, in a part of your community that struggles, and, and you can't control it, you can't manage it. So we, it, it just is like in the Great Depression, we created the welfare state in New Zealand in response to that. In the US, they had the New Deal. Well, we, in a way, need a new deal. We can no longer ignore the inequality. What you're saying is that in the past, people in affluent communities have been able to divert their eyes, but at the moment, everyone in Auckland, at the very least, is at alert level four. And part of that is because the inequalities that people have ignored for so long are continuing to contribute to the length and severity of this Delta outbreak. Exactly, we're paying the cost 
today rather than 30 years' time or through health spending or through prisons. We're paying the cost today. Mm. And we need to face that we can't live like this, that this has been a consequence of what we did in the 80s and 90s and, and those sorts of reforms we've adopted. It meant more inequality. We thought we could live with that. Mm. We can't. So this then might be an opportunity to reset. What do you think we should change? Well, I think we need to build surge capacity today. So we need to think about the longer term drivers and we've tried to do that. It's been hard for the politicians though because it's not that popular to, to confront these issues. So we've tended to put it to one side. That's understandable. We now need to recognise we're in a different space. So today what we need most importantly is surge investments. We need more negative pressure wards at, at Middlemore Hospital. We need more spending on, on Middlemore. Um, we need to bring in IC new nurses from offshore, we need to hire globally and bring them and their families in through MIQ. We need to build up our capacity. But then also at the grassroots, on the ground public health. Mm. The, we need to build up our grassroots, our on the ground capacity at the ground level. And that means working with the communities. It doesn't mean creating new layers of bureaucracy. It means empowering the local community. And the, you know they've done a great job through this in a challenging mm circumstance. We need to find ways financially that the government can direct resources to them. Right from the beginning of this pandemic, Rodney, public health officials have expressed concern about South Auckland in particular. And of course, we have seen multiple COVID-19 outbreaks in South Auckland. How do you think the Ministry of Health has handled the risk in that area? I just think we do have an issue in New Zealand, and that, that is that Wellington is different and is very far in life experience from South Auckland. We saw that with the Papatoitoi outbreak, an outbreak that should have been got under control and handled very quickly. Somehow we couldn't get our arms around that. Um, and, and so we do need to reimagine, and uh, things we're doing with the Māori Health Authority is the direction we need to be going, is this can't be top-down, it has to be bottom-up. Is there an economic argument? And that means providing resources. Right. Is there an economic argument for providing resources as, as, well, as, a, as well as a moral argument for, for increasing spending in that area? Yeah, well, going back to the 1930s, the economic payoff to adopting a welfare state was very high. Mm. So the economic payoff today to addressing it, Auckland, South Auckland, will be our front line over and over. And the more we invest resources and commit resources to South Auckland, the fewer restrictions we will have because as we get recurrent Delta outbreaks, we'll be able to deal with them quickly at less cost. Mm. And then when we're finished with South Auckland, we need to do Northland. As tourists come back, we need to think about the East Cape. We need to think about Poverty Bay. We need to think about other areas in New Zealand. I know since the start of this uh, pandemic, you and your colleagues have been modelling the spread of COVID-19 and the trajectory of the pandemic and infections around the world. I think at the start of this year, you said, perhaps optimistically, you, you hoped with, this, with vaccines that it would be a two-year global shock. Where do you see it going globally now? Yeah, well, the Indian outbreak and then the spread of Delta changed everything. And that optimism, we, we hoped that the vaccines would get in front of um, the virus and that we would bring it under control. Now, that can still happen in the future. But the vaccines are playing catch-up, and one day they will catch up with the virus. The virus will stop evolving and the vaccines will move faster. 
So that may happen, but it may take longer now. It may take up to, to five years. The good news is we can watch places like Singapore that have you know, a high level of cases today, 300 mm. cases, but among vaccinated people, low hospitalizations, only one person who's vaccinated in ICU, only one death from COVID in the vaccinated, and there was a woman in her 80s, that there's, we can get to a place where, like a lot of things we do in public health, where we minimize the cost. Mm. We can get there, but it will mean we'll have to do things differently to what we've done so far. And Rodney, at the start of this interview, you said we need to have some honest conversations about what we do going forward if we're stuck, if Auckland can't stamp out these small number of community cases. At what point do you think we would have to change our strategy in the coming months? OK, coming months is the right way. Elimination has worked for us. We can't give up just because we've had a setback. We keep trying. Uh, but we have to be conscious that there's a possibility we don't succeed. All right. Thank you very much for your time and expertise as always. We really appreciate it, Rodney. That is Rodney Jones from Wigram Capital Partners. After the break on Q&A, in many places overseas, it's already the norm. You want to enter a business? You've got to show proof of vaccination first. So what businesses and venues should be allowed to demand proof of vaccination here? Welcome back to Q&A. We can confirm this morning the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet is developing a proof of vaccination system for domestic use in New Zealand. Vaccine passports, as they are colloquially known, are already the norm in cities overseas. So, for example, if you want to grab a bagel with a schmear at a corner joint in Brooklyn, New York, this is the sign you will see on the front door. The final design for the New Zealand vaccine passes is yet to be confirmed, but we asked One, New uh, One News correspondents around the world to tell us how the passes work in their respective patches. Hi, I'm Anna, the US correspondent for One News based in New York. Here we have a couple of options for proof of vaccination. The first is a physical card that we got given when we went to get the jab. The other is a digital version, and one of the most popular ones is this, the IBM Excelsior Pass with a readable QR code. Now, you need to show that proof of vaccination for a whole bunch of activities in the New York State, including eating inside at a restaurant, going to a concert or a large sporting event. I used mine last week at the US Open, and although they didn't check the details too carefully, it is the law now in New York State. You do have to show proof of vaccination for those sorts of activities. Other states, though, have made it clear it's against their own state laws to ask for that proof of vaccination. They've banned businesses from requiring that proof of individuals, and they have got some support. The president, Joe Biden, has said he has no interest in introducing a national vaccine pass, any kind of proof of vaccination, even though the vaccination themselves is required of a lot of federal workers. However, no one in New York seems too bothered about providing that proof. Especially with winter coming, everyone's quite keen to eat indoors. Talofa, I'm Daniel Faitawa, TVNZ's Europe correspondent. Well, here in Britain, vaccine passports go under the name of COVID Pass, and you can download a COVID Pass on the NHS app or request a paper copy. Now, either way, they show a record of your vaccination or test status. Now, already these are being used to travel abroad and at some festivals and events like football matches. But here in England, at the end of this month, anyone over 18 will need a vaccine passport to enter nightclubs or 
or other indoor venues. Now Scotland's poised to follow suit. Northern Ireland and Wales have no plans to introduce COVID passports for venues. Now of course asking people to show certificates with COVID vaccination proof has been criticised as a discrimination by many venues because there are people out there who can't have vaccines because of medical reasons. But the government says if it's one thing that they've learnt is that when there are large gatherings of people, especially indoors, the virus tends to spike and spread. Hello and welcome to Sydney, Australia. This is really the COVID capital across the Tasman. Daily case numbers here are sitting at around 1,400, but come next week they're expected to peak at around 2,000. Now vaccinations of course are really uh, hitting record highs here in Sydney and when 70% of the population is double dosed with either AstraZeneca or Pfizer some of those restrictions are set to ease meaning vaccine passports will be key to knowing who is immunised and who is not. Currently you can get a passport on your phone but the federal government here is working on a brand new system that will be internationally recognised when borders open, which is when 80% of all Australians are double-dosed with a vaccine. Speaking about Sydney, though, specifically, there's also going to be an update to our contact tracing app, which will verify that you've had two doses before you're admitted to a bar, cafe or restaurant. Vaccines aren't mandatory here in Australia, but it's going to be very, very difficult to live a normal life if you're not double-jabbed. Andrew McFarland, Daniel Faitawa and Anna Burns-Francis, our correspondents around the world there. Now, we have approached a range of industry groups for their thoughts on vaccine passports. Retail New Zealand says about a third of its members surveyed support the use of passports at the moment. The EMA says passes are almost an inevitability. And the Dairy Business Owners Association says they're already eight months too late. But big questions remain about how passes might actually work here. What businesses and venues should and shouldn't be able to demand proof of vaccination? Should vaccine passports be used all the time or only at certain alert levels? Andrew Chen is a research fellow at Koi Tu, the Centre for Informed Futures at Auckland University. And he's with us this morning. Tēnā koe, Andrew. Are vaccine passports a good idea? Morena, Jack. Well... Vaccine certificates can be a good tool if used in the right ways. Um, and I think firstly, we have to distinguish between it's the, the use of these certificates in an international context versus in a domestic context. I think in an international context, they're quite similar to visas that are already used to determine who can or cannot enter a country. Um, and that's probably a foregone conclusion. In a domestic case, I think we have to really think about how it's going to be used because it's all well and good for folks who are vaccinated but we have to really think about what we do for somebody who doesn't have a pass or isn't vaccinated. OK, let's tease out some of those concerns you might have there a little bit more. So, so the government has said to us, as well as the international option, they're developing some sort of proof of pass for domestic purposes. What are your concerns with the domestic use? So I think when we look at the types of people who are most likely to not be vaccinated, um, there are going to be inequities. Uh, so, for example, we know that Māori and Pacifica are more likely to be not vaccinated. We know that young people are more likely to not be vaccinated. And there are going to be people who have legitimate grounds for not being vaccinated, whether that's for religious or health reasons. And we still have to have a debate about potentially which of those reasons we may or may not accept. I mean, we have the Bill of Rights Act, of course, but there may be other reasons that um, we want to say it's OK for you to not be unvaccinated. Um, um and so... 
you know, depending on the types of businesses that require you to show a, 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 proof, of, a proof of vaccination, um, it could lead to pretty bad discrimination. So, for example, if you have to show um, vaccination status in order to access a supermarket, then you might be locking out a whole bunch of people who actually need access to you know, groceries um, and, and saying that, well, you can't come in because you're not vaccinated. That's going to be hugely discriminatory. I know supporters of vaccine passports have suggested that the passes should only be used for discretionary businesses. So say, for example, um, restaurants or venues for, for music concerts or theatre or, or sports games, that sort of thing. Would that be an appropriate use of vaccine passes? I think that fundamentally we have to come back to a risk-based approach um, and understanding what sorts of venues are there going to be um, high risk of transmission if people are allowed to be in there unvaccinated. Um, and this is a similar approach that the government has taken around other policies like wearing face masks or mandatory record keeping. Um, and so that has to come first and then we should overlay the sort of human rights considerations on top of that. Um, so it probably makes sense that for basic needs services that you know you probably shouldn't interfere with a person's right to enter that sort of venue. Can you build in some accommodations into a vaccine pass system for people who, for medical reasons, for example, can't be vaccinated? It is possible. Um, <clears throat> In terms of the uh, standards that are currently being used overseas, um, there, there isn't that much accommodation for that. Um, but uh, hypothetically, one type of uh, pass could be that you have a QR code or something like that that's got all the information embedded in it. And then a retail worker or someone at the door can scan that QR code with their app. Um, and then we can control what information is shown to that worker. So, for example, it could just show a green tick, and that green tick could mean person is vaccinated or is not vaccinated but has a legitimate reason to not be vaccinated and, and is therefore allowed in. Mm. Um, so, that, so that could be one way of managing that. Um, I do have a concern that, you know, for people who are going to be unvaccinated for legitimate health reasons, that we don't really want to leave that up to individuals to have to decode that or understand that. So you don't really want your 17-year-old retail worker to be trying to figure out which medical conditions mean that somebody is allowed in versus not. Right, that makes sense. What then is the government's role in all of this? Yeah, so I think that at the moment, in the absence of there being any government policy, then the private sector is likely to adopt its own rules and go ahead. Um, and that's what we've seen overseas. So, you know, large scale events were first to basically introduce the requirement themselves. Um, I think that we will need some leadership from government to basically say, these are the places that we think should require this, or these are the places that we think shouldn't require this. And um, they can set rules, they can say, uh, these places are not allowed to ask or mm. they could even decide that no one in the country is allowed to ask. Um, there's all sorts of options and lots of things to consider. Um, and I think something that I would mention is just that, you know, we, we can be informed by what is happening overseas, but this discussion that we're having has to be had in the New Zealand context. Um, and, and I'm very aware that people are very much influenced by what they're seeing overseas. I think recently we've had this debate about people going out and exercising within a five kilometer radius. That's not a rule in New Zealand. That's a rule in some states in Australia, but people have gotten it into their heads already that this is a rule that exists here. So we haven't had that debate thoroughly around vaccination certificates yet. Um, and we need to make sure that those rules are fit for purpose here. Right, yeah. What are 
Do you think some of the benefits of vaccine passports from the examples that we have seen overseas? Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of opening up the economy and allowing people who have been vaccinated to um, have a bit more freedom, then vaccine passports are one way to provide confidence to people that they can move around in a safe way. Mm. Um, so that's probably the key advantage that people are looking for. Um, and and uh, to, uh, from an ethics perspective, it is a little bit of an individualistic perspective. It's sort of a because I have been vaccinated, I have the freedom perspective. Um, but the argument to say maybe we shouldn't use vaccine passports is a bit more of a com community perspective of saying we need to protect even the most vulnerable person who has a very legitimate reason for not being vaccinated and therefore we need to take different types of actions. Do you have concerns about how the data behind vaccine passes might be handled? Well, I think that at one level, um, we're going to see the Ministry of Health building its database of people who have been vaccinated and mm. that's already happening. Um, you know, you, your vaccine status is tied to your NHI number um, and, and that part is just, you know, standard Ministry of Health security. That's, that's kind of okay. The other half of it is that when you've got somebody who scans your QR code or your barcode and tries to interpret your vaccine certificate, um, whether or not that then reveals information to the, um, the person doing the check. What we've seen overseas is that the QR code will probably reveal the name and date of birth. And then in some places, they're supposed to also ask for another form of ID to verify that this QR code actually matches you. Right. Um, and we've also seen that a lot of people haven't bothered doing that because it's a bit annoying. Um, and so there could be some privacy concerns there um, if that personal information then gets leaked. I should note that the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet says they are taking privacy issues um, really seriously as they consider the development of this. So obviously the, the data management and privacy concerns are something they're considering. Um, Andrew, you've penned an open letter about legal protections for data obtained through contact tracing already. Can you just talk us through some of your concerns in that space? Yeah, sure. Um, so we're talking about contact tracing records, which will increase significantly in volume under the new mandatory record keeping provisions. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's data that's going to be in the app, which we're actually reasonably comfortable about. And then there's going to be pen and paper records that people are leaving as they go to venues if they don't have a phone or they don't trust the phone or they don't want to use it. Um, and at the moment, the only real protections that we have for that data are under the Privacy Act. Mm. Um, and the government has kind of continuously told us that they won't misuse the data and we trust that they won't misuse the data. But there are also private entities that will be holding on to a lot of that data. Um, and so what we're calling for is stronger protections to say, hey, if you have access to this data, don't misuse it. Because if you misuse it for any other purpose, whether that's marketing, law enforcement, anything else, um, there's going to be pretty strong penalties. All right. Thank you so much for your time and insights. We really appreciate it. That's yes. Andrew Chen. Thank you. Coming up, as the Taliban forms a government, we will ask what will be done to help people still stranded in Afghanistan. And te reo Māori, te reo Pākehā, te reo Turi hoki. Ka whakataki mātou i te wahine e tai te kōrirunga toru reo o Aotearoa. Ahead of Māori Language Week, a call for the Māori deaf community to have better access to their language and tikanga. It feels like being in a country without a passport. That's what it's like, I think, for Māori Dev and Te Ao Māori. Kia ora, we welcome back to Q&A.
A fortnight before consultation closes on the government's massive Three Waters proposals, there is significant opposition from many local councils around New Zealand. Of course, the plan would take control of waste, storm and drinking water out of the hands of local governments, with four big regional water authorities managing the infrastructure. National has this morning called for the Three Waters plan to be scrapped altogether. Nanaya Mahuta is the Minister for Local Government and she joins us now live from Kirikiriroa, Hamilton. Tēnā koe. Thank you for being with us this morning, Minister. Dozens of councils have either registered their Hi. opposition to these reforms or called for a taihoa. From your perspective, where is the process at? The process for uh, the waters uh, reform conversation, which has been happening over the last four years, is to ensure until the end of this month, uh, councils are very aware of the range of reports that we've commissioned and the modelling. They understand that information and the compelling case for change. We're receiving feedback uh, over this period of time, and we're also trying to understand what are the what are the outstanding concerns there for councils. How many councils are definitely on board? I think it's fair to say that all councils are aware that what we're trying to achieve is a reform where all councils are included so that the nation gets the greatest benefit and importantly over the long term residents get the cost benefits of an improved system because the current system mm. is inefficient, unsustainable and it's a challenge to ensure that we're prepared for the future. So how many councils are definitely on board? Well, this period of time was really for all councils to understand the complexity of the information mm. that we've uh, supplied based on their information and also uh, the modelling uh, that we've commissioned to give a good assessment about the benefits of reform uh, and also, if we don't reform, what the cost implications will be on councils. So this was never a time to count up, tally up how many councils agree and how many councils disagree. What we were trying to do was ensure we're working with councils so that they understand the extent mm. of the challenge and the depth of the information that we've commissioned in order to progress a reform agenda. But, but like you say, you have been working with councils around these reforms for several years now, so although the detail is, is you know, complex and they, they've had some time to consider this, from the information you have available and from the conversations you have had with local government leaders around New Zealand, can you give us an indication as to what percentage of councils around New Zealand are likely to support these reforms? Well, it's too early to tally up because the, uh, this, this com complex set of issues has been mm. around for at least 20 years. We've had reports from the Office of the Auditor-General uh, back before this government uh, detailing the extent of the challenge of underinvestment in water's infrastructure. So it's not like it's happened just yesterday. What has happened is that we've got a, a government who is prepared to take on a very difficult and complex set of challenges and propose to the sector, look, we just can't carry on in the way that we're continuing. So we mm. need to ensure that we're better prepared for the future climate change, but more importantly, delivering a financially sustainable pathway that will have cost and service benefits back to residents and consumers. Well, let's talk about the councils that are definitely out, if we can't tell, uh, talk about the ones that are on board. So the Far North and Whangarei councils are definitely out. Auckland and Kaipara have expressed significant concerns at this stage. Can you make these changes without legislating if 
numerous councils refuse to accept them? Well, the proposals, the reform proposals, are based on everyone being in Auckland, for example, mm. under significant challenge. Yes, they have water care, but they've got a constrained balance sheet. So in order to invest in the significant costs coming up into the future, they will need to separate their balance sheets. The Far North and Kaipara will benefit significantly from these reforms, so it's curious uh, that they're taking such a strong position when there are many communities in the Far North that are still on boiled drinking water notices. Similarly for Whangarei, they don't operate within a vacuum. So it's important to ensure that the whole of the North benefits when these reforms progress in a way that every household, no matter where they are, rural, provincial or in a metro sector, can deliver these cross-benefits to communities. So we're wanting to ensure that all councils remain engaged in a very serious and important conversation because if individual councils choose to put a stake in the ground and say we're out, uh, then no one benefits. If they do that, and, and from what we understand at the moment, numerous councils are looking like they will do that, will you mandate? I think it's fair to say that a small number of councils have expressed ongoing concerns but the complexity of the information mm. not only demonstrates that there is a case for change, there's a compelling case for change. Cabinet is yet to make the next set of decisions based on this eight-week period of feedback from uh, having these conversations with councils. And we'll give councils time to give that feedback. We'll align that to the proposal uh, that we're taking forward and say, well, where those, those mm. concerns can be met. And, and then Cabinet will make their consideration. So at what point does Cabinet have to make a decision? If you can't get all councils on board, and certainly it looks at the moment like you can't get them all on board, at what point does Cabinet have to say, you know what, either we legislate for this or we throw it away? That's a really good question. So we've been working really hard with local government New Zealand mm. and also with Taituara uh, to ensure that there was an eight-week period and that was signalled at the local government conference in July so that councils would have good time to understand the information, the modelling, be able to assess what the benefits are back to their ratepayers and residents and consumers and to ensure that we were having the right conversation. I think a few councils signalled too early that they were out without trying to really understand the depth of the information. Mm. I think it would be unsustainable for councils to expect that the status quo can continue, but importantly, that the government would be in a position to put money into the status quo situation mm. without further efficiencies. So back to my question then, at what point does Cabinet decide if it has to mandate? As I said previously, we've given the sector eight weeks, so at the end of this month, Cabinet will take on board all mm. the feedback from the sector and then make its determinations. The government's case for reform includes the assertion that amalgamated water entities would make 50% savings in both capacity and operational expenditure. But you've also promised no job losses. How do you square that circle? How is that possible? Well, because you actually need a local footprint to be able to deliver the services for councils. And what we've said is that the current system is not working. You've got 67 territorial authorities delivering water services, and we have not 
uh, been able to receive the full benefit of scale and aggregation, which will deliver certainty in terms of long-term asset management and investment in the system. It will professionalise the workforce. It will secure local employment because you do need people in your local communities delivering uh, the water services mm. that consumers and households so desperately need. But more importantly, we'll move beyond investing in repairs, renewals and maintenance to actually providing for growth. Mm. And that's what all regions will need if we want to provide more housing, secure better opportunities for industry coming into our regions. And that's why we're carrying on with the reforms. Just, just Let's consider those centralised entities though. So Entity C, for example, crosses the Cook Strait. It includes both Nelson and a large part of the East Coast of the North Island. I mean, those, those are incredibly diverse areas with different needs, different topographical features. How can you possibly centralise the requirements for those different communities into one entity? That's a really good question and fundamentally you've highlighted I think what has been a misconception amongst councils as well. This isn't about centralising uh, the service from any part of one entity. This is about ensuring that the aggregation and the, and the benefits of scale can ensure greater investment across a, a wider region. And so, for example, in Entity C, mm. which spans across Ngāti Kahununu and into Te Tauihu, uh, we've aligned the way in which that entity is able to deliver its services with natural water catchments. So it won't mean that someone up in Hastings will be having a say over something in Nelson and vice mm. versa. But it will mean that we're looking to ensure better investment in water infrastructure, better alignment with the catchments so that freshwater outcomes can be achieved, and overall, mm. from scale, cost efficiencies that will go right back to the uh, ratepayer. Let's consider Whangarei for a moment. According to your numbers, Whangarei ratepayers uh, will have water bills five times the current size by 2050 if these reforms um, aren't passed through. The Mayor, um, Cheryl Mai, has produced a counter analysis saying that your numbers were based on quote flawed analysis and faulty assumptions. Why should Council have faith in your numbers? Well, I think it's fair to say that the analysis that we got from Water Industry Commissioner of Scotland is one that has been peer-reviewed by Farrier's Weir as well as Becker and also Deloitte's to ensure not only is the modelling assumptions aligned with the regulatory environment in New Zealand, it also speaks to the economic benefits. So it has been peer-reviewed. Also, the other element mm. of the report that was commissioned specifically for Whangarei uh, positions Whangarei in a way that there is no economic regulation. So again, the benefit of the government's reform agenda goes through uh, with uh, the premise that economic re regulation is a key part mm. of the reform that will drive better cost benefits, not only for what the water service entities do, but so that consumers and households get the benefit of this reform in a, in a very real way, and that is to reduce household costs. A couple of quick questions on local government for you. Can you guarantee to the people of Tauranga they will have elections next year? What I can guarantee is that 
by appointing commissioners, they've been, a, they've been positioned in a way that they can achieve their broader growth objectives because they uh, have a set of commissioners who are not uh, bickering internally, but they are very engaged with the community and very uh, ensured uh, that they can uh, find a pathway so that we can return uh, to uh, locally elected um, representatives. Now, that's been a key part of appointing commissioners in Tauranga mm. because of the significant challenges, but internal bickering have stopped them from doing what needed to be done, which is making decisions in the best interests of Tauranga. So to be really clear, you, you can't offer a flat-out guarantee this morning that Tauranga will have local body elections next year? Look, that, that is the aim, that we can ensure local representatives mm. for Tauranga, and certainly the commissioners have been acting in a way that they have increased community engagement uh, based on the decisions that are in front of them for their period mm. of appointment. And by and large, most of the feedback that I've had has been very supportive because they've put aside some what has been long-standing internal bickering mm. uh, that has happened on that council, and they've looked towards the strategic opportunities for Tauranga and getting over some of the most significant challenges, transport, mm. the provision of housing, the wider smart, smart growth uh, objectives. And I think most uh, within the Tauranga community, although they may dislike the fact that commissioners were appointed, it was necessary, mm. they have appreciated the strategic lens uh, that those commissioners have operated under. Did you watch the Sunday piece with Tim Shadbolt? No, I didn't. Why not? Because I don't get much time to watch TV, Jack, and I, I'm sorry, it's just something that I didn't watch. It's not to say that I haven't been appraised of many of the issues uh, across a range of councils, including in Vicargill. We'll send you a link, Minister. Maybe you can watch it um, when you get five minutes downtime at some point. Thank you very much. That is Local Government Minister Nanaya Mahuta. After the break, as the Taliban appoints government officials and establishes official ministries, how will New Zealand manage its relationship with the new Afghan government? No my hooky my. Welcome back to Q&A. New documents obtained by Q&A show more than 700 people eligible to be in New Zealand are still stuck in Afghanistan, with the government yet to confirm any plans to help those who want to escape. In her capacity as Foreign Affairs Minister, Nanaya Mahuta is back with us. Kia ora. what is the plan to get those people out? Well, first I want to just recognise the role of the New Zealand Defence Force, who under very uh, difficult circumstances in that emergency evacuation period was able to help us process as many as we could, uh, those uh, people who were eligible to come back. We now have around about th 393 people now in New Zealand uh, that we're working with. But it is true to say that there are still a number in Afghanistan who we were unable to bring back. So. We're working uh, with uh, allied partners. Uh, we're also advocating alongside uh, them for safe passage. And we're looking towards uh, the role of our consulars, uh, consular effort uh, to be able to support them. How, how long will we have to wait for a plan? It's more than two weeks since that emergency mission ended. And, and surely, given the seriousness of the situation in Afghanistan, there is a sense of urgency here. 
Oh, look, it's a bit unfair to say that there isn't a plan. There is a plan. We want to be able to return uh, those in Afghanistan who are able to come to New Zealand to come here. Mm. But the situation on the ground is very complex. It's not as easy to, to say that there are commercial flights, uh, that the airport is indeed open or that safe passage is guaranteed. In fact, there are some, we understand individually, who are finding their way across borders. And again, that's another set of challenge that, challenges that we have to work through, and we are. So, so how long will we have to wait, though, until the advice is clear from your officials and we know exactly how we can get the remaining people out? Oh, we're, we're continuing to work uh, quite on a regular basis mm. in terms of with our allied partners about safe passage. But as I say, this is not a an easy set of solutions because there are no commercial flights at present and we need to find ways to ensure safe passage, remain in contact with those who are in Afghanistan to be able to give them advice about next steps and we are doing that as best we can. Can you give us some sense as to the time frame you're working to here? Should we expect more detail in the next few weeks or could these people be waiting potentially months or years to get out? Look, we continue to uh, get regular briefings and updates about what next steps could look like. And we're critically aware mm. uh, that there are uh, people in, who remain in Afghanistan who uh, are able to come to New Zealand, but are in, in a very challenging uh, situation. So we understand the urgency, but the practicality of being able to respond requires us to work with allied partners, recognise that it's not as easy mm. as setting up a commercial flight. We're looking uh, to those uh, like-minded countries who have similar challenges to find a way forward. So we will do the best we can as soon as we can based on good information and the ability to find a pathway forward for them. Do you recognise the Taliban as the official government of Afghanistan? Right at present, we, ha we have not. Uh, but that hasn't eliminated our ability to work with allied partners mm. to ensure that we're calling on the Taliban for safe passage and safe pathways to enable those who are eligible to go to other countries to do so. And we're doing that in unison, again, with, uh, with multilateral mm. partners. Prior to the fall of Kabul, what plans did New Zealand have to evacuate New Zealand citizens, residents and those who have helped with our defence missions in Afghanistan? Well, you'll recall that there was uh, some criteria applied in 2013 uh, to uh, be able to ensure eligibility of some people. Uh, most of the uh, over a couple of million who are in third countries now are waiting to be resettled. Uh, Afghans uh, are um, subject to the UNHCR process. Um, the government at the time, I think in 2014, closed down mm. our embassy and we only had a small force uh, in Afghanistan, a small number of the New Zealand but, Defence Force who were present there so, right up until this time. Sorry to interrupt so you though, our, our were there plans to get people out before the fall of Kabul? Oh, 
I don't think there was any uh, any sense that the fall of Kabul would happen as soon as it had. Mm. And the New Zealand uh, Chief of Defence uh, certainly said that uh, in his stand-up during the period of the emergency evacuation, and that mm. was raised uh, when we, uh, as uh, responsible ministers, presented uh, to the Foreign Affairs and Defence uh, Select Committee. It we have seen um, the allies and partners who, whom you've referred to several times um, announce they will accept emergency intakes of refugees from Afghanistan. Canada, for example, is taking 20,000 refugees. Why hasn't New Zealand committed to an additional intake of refugees in addition to its um, usual intake? I think um, it's fair to say that Canada have factored in its extra intake within its existing refugee uh, quota. Uh, but in the second phase of uh, our government's response, uh, that is certainly a set of circumstances that we'll draw on in order to uh, make a, another set of determinations. Our immediate priority, though, right now, is for the emergency evacuation number to be able to come back to New Zealand mm. and to find a pathway for those who were unable to be evacuated to be able to come to New Zealand. But we want successful resettlement, and we want to ensure that the experience of that successful resettlement uh, has... Uh, uh, a response in terms of uh, mm. our COVID considerations, but also housing. Mm. Um, there's been a lot of trauma around these individuals and families, so making sure that we've got the right networks and support here for successful resettlement, that's so an absolute focus for you our say that additional, government. You say that additional consideration around um, an emergency intake of refugees will happen in the second phase of the government response, so when will that be? No, just to be clear, uh, the emergency evacuation number was based on the criteria that the Prime Minister announced on the 16th of August for the period of time on which we were able to have the New Zealand Defence Force along allied partners yeah. at Kabul Airport to, emerge, to evacuate people then. It was a time-limited set of criteria. The second phase is around the substantial numbers of Afghan refugees who are looking to be resettled, mm. and that's the basis upon which we've been asked as responsible ministers, myself alongside uh, the Minister of Immigration and Defence, to provide further information so that Cabinet can consider a phase two support. All right. Thank you very much for your time, Foreign Affairs Minister Nanaya Mahuta. Tēnā koe. After the break on Q&A, e the woman who can speak all three official languages. Kia ora anō. Ko te timatanga o te wiki o te reo Māori Pōpō. Māori Language Week kicks off tomorrow, a week in which we highlight one of our three official languages. They are, of course, te reo Māori, English and New Zealand Sign Language. You are probably likely, I'm guessing, to know at least some of one of those languages, maybe two, but here's reporter Fina Owen with someone fluent in all three. And all I do is I'll take a handful, I'll put it into my jar. Friday morning and with her mokopuna back at kura post-lockdown, Stephanie Afeto is back in her kitchen making rongoa balm from toto leaves. I make it for my mum who's got arthritis. But this Hamilton grandmother is widely respected for another skill. She's not only fluent in New Zealand's three official languages, she's the world's most proficient interpreter in te reo Māori sign language. In a iwi, in a hapu, tēnā tātou i tēnei rā o Waitangi. 
You could say Te Reo Māori Sign Language had its beginning 30 years ago in Stephanie's kitchen, where she'd have a kapa with a Māori mate, the late Patrick Thompson, who was profoundly deaf. And he would ask me questions about what happened at the marae. He'd ask me what was he talking about when he said, and he would bring up um, something that I'd sign. He goes, what does that mean? And it was through those uh, casual conversations that the language developed. So an example was uh, he was trying to tell me about um, a hangi was being cooked, but he used the sign. I couldn't understand what he meant because I knew he was talking about food. So he said, you know, they, they dig a hole and they put the food in a basket, they put it down. I went, oh, a hangi. And the sign changed and he started using this sign for hangi rather than the old sign that was being used through the community for hangi. They were basing this sign on the word hang. Compared with Pākehā, the incidence of hearing impairments is higher among Māori. Through the 1960s, there was an outbreak of um, rubella, and a lot of our Māori um, now, who are in their 50s to 60s, uh, became deaf as a result of um, rubella. Um, Patrick became deaf through uh, meningitis, so there was a lot of health um, problems that have linked to deafness in the Māori deaf community. Even now, uh, glue areas are high, um, higher amongst Māori than, say, Pākehā. The very first hui and wānanga for Māori deaf were held in the 90s. Look, I think for any Māori to know who they are, have a sense of belonging is really important. Um, and, and, that's, and that's no different for Māori deaf. We have easier access to Dal Māori. You know, it's, we see it on the news, we've got our own Māori TV programmes, um, radio, music. It feels like being in a country without a passport. That's what it's like, I think, for Māori deaf and Te Ao Māori. But finding a way to succinctly express Māori concepts has been a challenge. Like trying to explain the concept and then give them a sign, or, or, and, and at the same time keeping up with the speaker. Four years ago, the New Zealand Sign Language Board's strategy committed to training more trilingual interpreters. We're in 2021 now, and there's been nothing happened. Uh, nothing's happened to date, nothing. Um, I'm still the only almost senior qualified trilingual interpreter in Aotearoa. Uh, we've got a few others, but there's been nothing, like I said, nothing formal has happened uh, from the New Zealand Sign Language Board or from governments or from any organisation that works with deaf, so it's been a bit disheartening. But the concept of interpreting te reo into sign language has recently had more visibility. And frequent COVID press conferences have given more prominence to the role of interpreters and inclusion of deaf audiences. Good afternoon, everyone. It's been wonderful. The exposure has been great. I, I just, I'm waiting for the benefits to trickle down to our Māori deaf community, though. Ah, he wahi ne toa ne. Ko fina o in tēnā, a pōpō ko te wiki o te reo Māori ki te āmai mai koutou, whakatā, ākou noa i etahi kupu hau pia. Engari, me ngā hau.
I just said uh, Māori Language Week kicks off tomorrow. It's all good if you're feeling a little bit nervous trying to speak the reo, but maybe just start by trying a few new words, something easy like that. Have fun. Kua mutu. That's Q&A for this week. Thanks to my hoa mahi, my Q&A colleagues. Hey tērā wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.